Well, I became a, a Christian, a member of my church at the age of 10. And once I became a member, my church did with me what they did with, with every member. They uh, gave me a folder full of envelopes with my name on them for my tithe and my offering, 10 years old. And it was probably the first like thing with my name and address on it, so I, I took great pride in, in having um, this. But, but there it was, my personalized tithing giving envelope at the age of t- uh, 10 with, with a, an envelope for uh, each week of the year. And so if I was to hold up a, um, a giving envelope here, what would you think? Like, what would be your impression? Maybe some of you hear that uh, and you get concerns. That you're tired of, of churches who are obsessed with, uh, with money, and I get it. The church can be weird on this, right? I, sometimes I feel weird when people ask me for money. And December is a year where a lot of organizations, churches, charitable organizations, get most of their or a lot of their donations. So you probably just went through a month where lots of people reached to you, asked you for for money, for your generosity. And I think this tension or this feeling we have, or it's a question worth asking, which is why? Why does generosity feel like a burden and not an opportunity? Why does generosity feel like a burden, not an opportunity? And studies have shown again and again and again that living generously, like being a generous person, it makes you happier makes you healthier, increases your satisfaction with life. It, it broadly improves your relationships with other people. The researchers, uh, researchers have noticed that generosity towards people in times of need actually like, creates a release of endorphins, the feel-good things in your body, um, what's called the helper's high, basically, that if you're generous, you have more endorphins released. And not to mention, a uh, generous attitude has been shown to improve your immune system. You get sick less when you're generous and extend your, your lifespan. You live longer when you're generous. The book after book, study after study, article after article, point out that more, uh, the more generous you live, the happier you are. So why does generosity feel more like a burden than an opportunity? And how do we change that? Well, I want to I jump into this story of Zacchaeus, because it provides a different path. It, it answers that, that question of how generosity becomes an opportunity, not a burden. And if that's going to be true for you, if, if you're going to be a generous person and you take this story in, I, I want to unpack three things together. One, if you're going to become a generous person, you have, to, you have to reject your training. You have to climb the tree. And you need to taste true generosity. So re- reject your training, climb the tree, taste to true generosity. So first, re- reject your training. And in, in this passage, there's a number of things that are, are sort of cultural realities that are, are unspoken assumptions that we need to push into. We need to know um, to understand this text together. That first, uh, Jesus is, uh, we're told Jesus is on his way into Jericho. And uh, the city of Jericho was an important city in that day. Herod the Great, uh, if you remember him at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, he's the one who wants to kill the, Jesus at his birth. Um, Herod the Great was a very wealthy man, very powerful man, and he built his winter residence in Jericho. Jericho was kind of like the ancient Florida. It's like had a great climate, so people went there in winter. And so it was a place where lots of people were attracted because there was power there, there was wealth there, there was influence, had a really good, a really good economy, and it was on um, a major trading route that led from Jer- Jericho into Jerusalem, the, the route probably Jesus was walking 
at this point. So it was a wealthy, influential, important place. And here we meet a man named Zacchaeus, who we're told is a chief tax collector. Which would mean two things is true about Zacchaeus. First, Zacchaeus is, is rich. Incredibly wealthy. And Luke intentionally uh, points this out. He's wealthy. He's, uh, he was rich. The second thing we know about Zacchaeus as a chief tax collector is that he was, he was a bad person. That as a chief tax collector, Zacchaeus would get that role because he would, he would put in a bid to Rome to the, the authority of the day. And, and basically, Rome, if he had the highest bid, he would then own and get to, to collect all of the taxes in the trading route from Jericho down to Jerusalem. He, got to be the, he, he owned that, that, that tax system, basically. So one, it shows you he's incredibly wealthy because he could make the largest bid to Rome, pay Rome up front, and then he gets to charge whatever he wants as the tax collector. He would stop you on the road, demand to look through all of your possessions, and take whatever he felt was fair. So if you were a small business owner, he could, he could grab a quarter of your profits on the spot. If you were a poor farmer, he could collect your harvest, no questions asked. And he did. But the reality was this, is, this was systematic economic injustice by an abusive government power. And as one commentator put it, like if you're, if you're a good person, you wouldn't want this job. Here's what that commentator says. This is an occupation which depends for success on suspicion, intrusion, harassment, and force. Tends not to attract the most pleasant personalities. And the result was this, this, this economic system, Zacchaeus, and everyone else participated in. It, it trained them to live life in a certain way, into a way of oppression, into a way of brokenness. It trained both the oppressed and the oppressor, Zacchaeus, and so there were a lot of people in Jericho and in this culture in this day who, because of, of heavy taxation, had no chance to ever access economic opportunity or freedom. That even though there was incredible economic wealth in Jericho, it was only available to, to a few because those who were marginalized were shut off from it. Small business owners, uh, poor farmers, the vulnerable marginalized were repeatedly victimized by Zacchaeus and the governmental authority of the day because they had the power and the poor did not. And that's an all-too-common human story, that those with power, governments, the wealthy, use their, their power to create a structure or a system that, that advantages themselves and disadvantages others. And so tomorrow we celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And, and I want to take a moment and just read his, some from his letter from Birmingham jail, because I think often I, I understood Dr. King is, is trying to do away with segregation. He wanted to drink at the same water fountain as everybody. He wanted to eat at the same lunch counter as everybody. And that's true, certainly. But he, what he wanted was beyond that. Is because when you separate um, society like that, what, what that means is that uh, if you're not allowed to, to eat at the same place or being part of the same culture and the same society, it means you're shut off from the economic engine and system that was creating wealth for our country. That's what King really wanted, was to be, to be able to have economic opportunity. And so here's what he wrote from letter to uh, letter from Birmingham jail. He writes, In spite of my shattered dreams of the past, I came to Birmingham with the hope that the white religious leadership of this community would see the justice of our cause and with deep moral concern serve as the channel through which our just grievances would get to the power structure. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I've heard so many ministers say, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I've watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion 
which made a strange distinction between body and soul, the sacred and secular. What King is saying is if you believe the gospel, it has economic implications. Right? The gospel, listen, if you believe the gospel, you don't just believe well, someday I'll float around in heaven and it'll be better for me. No, like if you believe the gospel, that has economic impl- implications. Right? If you encounter Jesus, it means there's, there's no reason an economy should dehumanize or cut people off from meaningful work or opportunity because of the color of their skin or because of their socioeconomic class. That, that if every human being is made in the image of God, which is what the gospel proclaims and teaches, it means every person is someone who would bring economic vitality and opportunity if they're not shut off from the system or if they're not caught in sin. And so Zacchaeus, pre, pre-Jesus, isn't just greedy, he's anti-gospel. And everything anti-gospel is oppressive. It's a weight, it's a burden. So let me go, let me go in, in a direction gently. I would say every one of us in this room have been trained in anti-gospel economic ways. And I mean that on, on two levels. That today you're going to receive countless messages that the only way you're going to have a good life is if you consume certain things. If you have a certain car, if you have a certain type of house, if you have a certain type of lifestyle. That's the only way you can be happy. Our, the economics of our culture puts that message out repeatedly. It's a consumeristic message and we're all trained on that. We're all, we're all trained on that. But Dr. King's words about just structures are also relevant to us today. That the reality is around the world and our own culture as well, governments and people with influence are always trying to set up an economic system that favors themselves if they can get away with it. And so you talk to any small business owner and the rules they have to play by are very different than rules of, of large corporations that have uh, politicians' ears and get to help write bills to favor themselves against smaller Companies, or talk to a minority business owner east of Truce, and they'll often tell you two things. One, they can't get a loan from a business or from a bank. And two, much of the property east of Truce is actually owned by wealthy people who are holding on to it for gentrification. So if you, if you want to start a business, you often lack access to capital and you, last, you lack a place to actually do it, a building to do it in. So my point by that is, is to, I want to go back to the original question, which is why is generosity a burden and not an opportunity? And my answer is that is there's a lot of anti-gospel economics out there pushing us away from the dignity of all people, the value of work, the goodness of, of opportunity. And in the story of Zacchaeus, what I don't want us to see is just a guy who like gives a bunch of his money away and it's like individual generosity. Because what Zacchaeus does with his generosity is actually undermine the economic structure that he had been a part of. An economic structure that had had burdened, oppressed, and weighed down everyone who was a part of it. Both the oppressed, obviously, but also Zacchaeus. He's weighed down. He's broken. So up until this point, Luke had only spoken of the wealthy um, in very negative terms. This is the one moment where it begins to change. And so Zacchaeus, he's an oppressor no one likes. He's despised by everyone. And no doubt his life of of taking um, from others, oppressing others, of dishonest wealth gain, it's left him tired looking for something else, looking for Jesus. And so I don't know if you, if you read verse 3, but verse 3 um, says this of Zacchaeus. It says, he, he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. Now the traditional uh, church interpretation of that verse has been, um, Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. 
He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, right? Those of you who grew up in church, you might know that song. And the thought was, Zacchaeus, he's a really short dude, and he's like, hey, let me see, like, give me a stool or something. And that's actually not what's happening. I mean, it is kind of what's happening, but it's not totally. What's clear what's happening here is the crowd is actually preventing Zacchaeus from getting to Jesus. The crowd doesn't want Zacchaeus to get to Jesus. They hate him. They despise him. And so Luke is is making that clear. The crowd is, is forcing him out. And it's a devastating scene, isn't it? Economically oppressed people, rightfully angry at Zacchaeus, who's done them great harm. They are shutting access to Jesus off from Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, who's worn out by his life, who's looking for something else, can't get to Jesus. The same walls we build up with one another were just as real then as they are today. Nobody's getting healing. Everybody mistrusts one another. They've been trained in anti-gospel economics and, and everyone's burden, everyone's weighed down, and everyone is playing their part. When I was a, a pastor in Indiana, I had a meeting with a, a family one time, and they invited me over, and I didn't really know them very well, and so I was surprised when we quickly, we quickly went to very personal um, topics, and the conversation went, was very serious and very intimate, and I was really surprised by that. I was taken back by that, and so at the end of the conversation, I told them that. I was like, this is amazing. Like, you guys really opened yourself up to me. Thank you. Like, this is a really meaningful encounter conversation for me, and so I, I thank them for that, and the husband, as I'm finishing up, he looks at me, and he says, there's only one thing you will never talk to me about, money. And I chuckled because I thought he was joking, but he was not joking, uh, and he went on to tell me, if you ever preach on money, I'll get up and walk out. If you ever talk to me about money, I will leave the church. And I didn't have language for it then, but reading the story of Zacchaeus, I think I, I, think I do. It's like, that guy, that guy was, he's oppressed, he's burdened. He's weighed down. And he'd been trained into it by a culture that doesn't know, like, good gospel economics, lifestyle, generosity. So you got to reject your training. We all got a lot of bad training. We have to reject it. That's one. But two, how do we reject it? We climb the tree. All right, so here the crowd is. They're intentionally shutting Zacchaeus away from access to Jesus. And what Zacchaeus does is he runs around them. He finds a tree, and he, he climbs up the tree. Now, this is weird behavior. And my guess is if you were to drive over to my house, we had a meeting later today at my house, and you drove, and you're driving up, and you see me in the top of my tree, my guess is you're probably just going to drive right past Text me and be like, something came up when you're really thinking, that dude's weird, what's wrong with him? Uh, and you're going to move on because adults do not climb trees, right? I mean, maybe you would if no one's looking, but you, like, adults do not climb trees. And that was true, as true in that day as it is um, today, that climbing a tree as an adult is just weird behavior. It just is. And that's the point. Zacchaeus is doing a weird thing because he doesn't care. He doesn't care about cultural customs anymore. He doesn't care what other people think about him. He has to get to Jesus. And so he throws out cultural customs, cultural expectations, his shame. And this wealthy guy everybody hates climbs the tree. And I don't know if you know this, but trees are taller than everybody else. So everybody would see him up in the tree. Totally removing shame. All sense of propriety. And so when I say, listen, you got to reject your training and climb the tree, what I mean is, you have, if you're going to be a generous person, you have to completely accept a countercultural lifestyle. To your money, to your wealth, to the way you think about your life. And more on that in a minute, back to the weirdness of climbing trees. Um, so there, there's Zacchaeus, he, he's in the tree, and Luke tells us that Jesus on his way, like, Zacchaeus has done all this to see Jesus. And we're told as Jesus walks into the city, he stops and he looks up 
at Zacchaeus. He sees Zacchaeus and says to Zacchaeus, I'm going to eat at your house today. And suddenly the whole, the whole story flips. It goes from Zacchaeus is doing everything he can to seek Jesus to Jesus is actually the one seeking Zacchaeus. And that's how that's, Luke tells us very intentionally. At the beginning of the story, it's Zacchaeus is seeking Jesus. And at the end of the story, Jesus says, I came to seek and save what is lost. And you have to understand how astonishing. Everybody hates Zacchaeus. He's, a bad, like he's, a bad, he's done bad things. He's a bad person. This is not the person Jesus should go eat with. The crowd doesn't even think Zacchaeus should be able to look at Jesus. But Jesus feels differently. Jesus looks up at Zacchaeus. And Jesus wants to eat with Zacchaeus. Now, I love the way the theologian Joel Green summarizes this moment. It says, in his characterization of Zacchaeus, Luke pulls the rug from under every cliche, every formula by which people's status before God might be calculated. The Christians in the room, what that means is there's no one you and I can cut off from access to the kingdom of God. There's no one to whom the kingdom of God is not available. And there is no one you're able to look at with superiority, with pride, with disdain. The very person you think you cannot be in a relationship with, with Jesus is the very person Jesus may want to go eat with. But it's not just that. It's also one look from Jesus to Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus is free. He's changed. Right? He gives away half of his possessions to the poor. He, re- he offers to restore anyone fourfold if he's defrauded or, been a vic- or caused a victim of, of injustice. That's a free man. And so how do we do that? How do we climb the tree? And, and I want to give you two thoughts. As you think about your lifestyle, generosity, living counterculturally, two thoughts. One is, is spend to flourish others. Because Zacchaeus, he's doing more than just giving to the poor here. Actually, through his generosity, he's actually undermining the economic system he's a part of. Right. So one, uh, one very explicit point is that he says, if I defrauded anyone, I'll repay them fourfold. Basically, he's saying, listen, I have defrauded people. I've been a part of injustice. I will pay that back. That's one. But, um, but secondly, even his generosity, the fact that he gives uh, half of his money away to the poor, that's actually undermining the way the economic system works. Because economics, it's more than about money. It's relationships. It's, it's people. And in that day, if you were going to give anybody anything, especially money, you would only give something to someone if you knew they could give you something back. The only way you'd give to anybody anything is if they would enhance your status, your reputation, your image. But Zacchaeus doesn't do that. He completely undermines that high cultural value. No, there was no such thing as, as non-reciprocal generosity in that day. Christianity changed that. And so Zacchaeus, he gives half of his possessions away without expectation of getting anything back in return. He's completely undermined the economic system. So when I say spin to flourish others, I think we Christians should use our economic resources in ways that undermine the, the unhealthy parts of the economic structures we live. So a, a few thoughts. All right, for example, there are, there are companies that intentionally support economic flourishing in under-resourced neighborhoods and, and forgotten parts of, of the city. Right? Companies that recognize that part of the city is not flourishing, we're going to invest there, even though we may not receive a financial profit from that. And so an illustration now, one thing I think we all can agree on is that the best pizza in the world is Chicago deep dish pizza, right? Thanks. One guy, come on. 
I've taught you better than this, please. Uh, it's deep dish pizza. And, and uh, when Missy and I lived in Chicago, we always had, you know, we went back and forth between two choices. Her favorite was Lumanati's. My favorite was a local place called The Silo. And so we, you know, we'd go back and, and forth. Well, uh, later in being in Chicago, I found out that Lumanati's um, had actually opened a store up in South Chicago, very economically um, uh, uh, under-resourced area, um, intentionally to try to spur economic development in that area and also to give prisoners uh, work when they left prison and reintegrated back into the community. It was a huge, it was a huge success. And so that, that was one of the many examples where Misty was right and I was wrong because that's better pizza, right? It's economic justice along with the best pizza in the world, right? Spend, spend your place, spend your dollars, your economic resources in places and companies that are, are thinking about economic flourishing for all. And, and another example, to go on the other side of the of the political spectrum for a second. That, that for me, I've, I've researched and thought through companies that, um, that are big supporters of, of our culture's um, abortion industry. And I've just decided that's not economic flourishing. That doesn't lead to economic flourishing. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna spend my economic resources um, in, those, in those places. But, and, and I say that, and, and here's the deal. I, I don't wanna be the pastor who tells you where to buy your shoes. Like that's just weird, right? And it's legalistic. Um, all I'm saying is where do, you, where do you give your economic resources? Because the companies you support, it's more than just money. It's people and it's, it's power and it's, it's, it's influence. Where, who are you supporting? Who are you giving to? But beyond that, it also means as Christians, we should want to know what good economics actually is. right? We don't want to just have good intentions. We want to know what does, what does lead the poor, the vulnerable, the marginalized to flourish. right? It's not just enough to want to see and hope people flourish, but what actually, what's actually leads to good flourishing. And so the, the one thing I will get a little bit legalistic in is just one documentary that's been really helpful to me in understanding good economics in, in an entertaining way is uh, the documentary Poverty, Inc. It's on Netflix. I think it still is, at least right now. Um, and the key message of the movie is a lot of, a lot of poverty is because people don't have access to the economic markets and wealth, and, and they're shut off from those places around the world and, and to an extent still in our own culture. Um, and it was a really uplifting message of people um, are, are God-given and have talents and want to grow and flourish, and oftentimes they are oppressed by governments or laws or realities that, that, that keep them in place of dependency or poverty or marginality marginalization. So look into that. Don't just, don't just have good intentions. Like actually, actually know what causes flourishing and do it. Because generosity ultimately, like even though this is a sermon on your lifestyle, we're thinking through that a little bit. Generosity ultimately, it's not just about giving money away, right? Zach, he, this story is not just about giving money away. It's about understanding the system he was a part of that was leading people into to marginalization and not being valued and not having opportunity. So, as I said, generosity is not just about giving money away. It's about empowering people to participate in the economy and flourish, right? To start a business or to get a job and bring their God-given gifts to their communities, to the cities, to the world. And so as a church, like, as we think about our generosity and how we give our, our resources away, we don't want to just like, intend for good um, economic resources. We want to actually see flourishing. And so this morning I want to introduce you to, um, to a couple we've been increasingly becoming friends with, uh, Daryl and Stephanie Answer. Uh, they're church planners in uh, East Kansas City. They live in the Ivanhoe neighborhood of Kansas City, a neighborhood that has amazing people with lots of things to give away to our city, but, but it's a part of our city where um, it's hard to have access to economic markets or capital to grow businesses. And so we want to we partner with Daryl and Stephanie, one, because we believe the local church should be a place that provides hope and flourishing to communities, but also because they, they embody what good church planners should be, which is proclaiming the gospel and living out its implications into their own 
neighborhood. So when Daryl and I talk, he sees the gospel has implications for entrepreneurship, care for prisoners who are trying to transition back into community and, and add value to their, their society, small business owners who are dealing with unjust landlords. Um, and so I'm excited. Daryl will be here. He'll preach for us February 25th. I can't wait. He and Stephanie are amazing leaders. And my hope, my prayer is that over time, our two churches can be two churches with genuine fellowship, right, who learn from one another, who pray with one another, who support one another. And yet I'm also not naive. That's hard work. And a lot of what's happening here in Zacchaeus is, is this breakdown between, um, between the socioeconomically poor and the socioeconomically rich, right? The poor shutting Zacchaeus out from access to Jesus. And in their marginalization, they, they're trying to keep him away. And Zacchaeus is broken and tired and looking for a new way of life. And we believe the church with the gospel is, one of the, is maybe the only, maybe one of the best ways of, of overcoming that divide. Because what does Jesus do? He goes right into the tension and he, he goes to the one house no one else was willing to go to. And we believe the church is one of the best ways to spend, to flourish, Others, because we believe healthy local churches will flourish local communities, neighborhoods, and our city. So that's one. If you want to climb the tree, spend intentionally to flourish others. Secondly, and I've already hinted at this, but secondly, live a countercultural lifestyle. Right? Zacchaeus, in climbing the tree, has done away from done away with all cultural expectations, but also in his generosity, he's living completely countercultural as well. And so a question I want to reflect on this morning is: is your lifestyle countercultural? They go home, do a lifestyle audit. Is, is your house, is your car, is your level of spending, is it countercultural? And I'm not just talking, a lot of times I think we start with our budget, but oftentimes we've already made decisions with the budget that has, have meant um, we're in a house or a car or a lifestyle that stretches us very thin, which does not leave margin for generosity. And so we look at, well, my mortgage is this and my car is this and this is that. And it's, well, I can't be generous because I have a house. But, but we've made decisions that have, have put us in that place. We've ex- overextended ourselves because of our wants. And so what do you own? And what resources does it take to keep it up? In what ways is your lifestyle good news for the vulnerable and the marginalized in our city? How does your lifestyle set you apart from your neighbors who do not yet know Jesus? Is your lifestyle countercultural? That's a question I think worth reflecting on. And I just want to encourage you in one next step to become countercultural in your lifestyle, your generosity this week. And that is, whatever your financial position today, start giving away 10% of your income. And if you already give 10% away, commit to, to increasing that generosity. And I'll be real, like I was tempted to this week to be like, you know, just like start anywhere, like start at 2% or 3%. But listen, just to be real, I'm not interested in maybe having like one little chain of the oppression, the oppression or the burden of, of, of money off of you this week. Not you got to throw the whole thing off. And the only way you're going to do that is if you really climb the tree, look at Jesus and trust him. And Jesus affirmed and valued a biblical standard, which was the starting place is 10%. In the Old Testament, uh, believers then gave 10% away to the house of God, to the, the people of God, and then they gave more to the poor and the marginalized on top of that. That was the expectation of every Old Testament believer. And, and I know you're saying, well, Jesus came and he didn't give a rule about that. He didn't say how much to give away. He didn't give a percentage and about how much to give to the poor, or to the church. And, and you're right. Jesus didn't set a, a law or a rule here. But if you're a Christian in this world, you follow Jesus, you accept him as Savior, Lord, 
I want to ask a question to help guide you as you think about generosity. It's convicted me, so let's see. Uh, if, if in the, the Hebrew Scriptures the requirement of Old Testament believers was 10% went to the house of God and, there, and more to the poor and the vulnerable on top of that, if that was the requirement in the Hebrew Scriptures, when you read the New Testament, you see the generosity of Jesus. What he did for the poor and the, the lame and the blind, the forgotten, what he did for the rich, <laughs> Zacchaeus, what he did for you, right? Leaving heaven, coming to earth, stripping himself of his riches and embracing suffering and, and being mocked and insulted, giving up all of his riches to, to, to save you. When you reflect on that generosity, is your, is your conclusion then that God expects less of us today than he expected of his Old Testament believers? I get this is uncomfortable. And please know, like, this, is never, this is never about funding the church or like, you know, we, we need to get a building, so I'm going to preach really hard on generosity. This, no, God will give us everything we need. I believe that. Which is why Jesus, in all honesty, and, and we, me as well, was just as blown away by the, the generosity of the widow's might. And was just sat, he just sat back and celebrated and was stunned um, by it. He was... He took the generosity of a young boy who just had a few loaves and a few fishes and fed thousands of people. This isn't, this isn't a we need situation. Listen, God will give us everything we ever need as a church. I believe that. Jesus doesn't need your money. He doesn't need my money. But he does want you free. He wants you to encounter his generosity. And he wants you to live it out yourself. Because if you think of generosity as a burden... And not an opportunity. It means you, you're Zacchaeus. You're up in the tree. You're way down. You're not free. And that's a terrible way to live, isn't it? To climb the tree, stop listening to how the culture thinks you should live, what your lifestyle should look like, how much money you should have or not have. Stop listening to that. Get in the tree and look for Jesus. Because when you do, then you have the opportunity to, to taste true generosity. Right? When Zacchaeus got in that tree, he, he didn't know what he was getting with Jesus. He had no idea. He just wanted to look at him. Right? Well, who is this guy? I'm going I'm to I'm investigate. I'm going I'm to look. And he had no idea that Jesus was going to come right up to him and say, I'm eating at your house today. And I would say a lot of us, like, we, we want to look at Jesus from the tree. He's down there. We can, he's safe down there. Right? We can keep him at arm's length. We can listen. We can accept what we like, reject what we don't like. Right? We may, we maybe we can come to our front porch. We can sit down and have an evening, sh- uh, you know, evening chat on our front porch as the sun goes down. But when the sun goes down, we're going to go into our home. He's not coming with us. He's not going to come in. And listen, I'm just being real. Jesus has no interest in that kind of relationship with you. You don't get to know him from the tree or from the front porch. He's going to come in. He's going to walk into rooms he wasn't invited to. And he's going to sit down at the table and want to talk, to know you, to listen to you, to hear your prayers to hear your fears, to hear your complaints, to hear your joys. He wants to eat with you. He wants to know you. And when you finally let him in, right, when you get out of the tree and you go and you sit down at the table with him, you, find, you can taste true generosity. He has forgiveness for you. He has love for you. Look at, look at all he's done to know you. He's the son of God who had the riches of the world, and he left all of it. To enter in and to live as a poor son of a carpenter in a forgotten town. To go to the the big city and and attract a huge crowd only to be mocked and insulted. 
put up on a cross, nailed to his death, embarrassed, ashamed. And he did all of that, gave up everything to come and to find you in the tree, to save you and eat with you. He came to seek you. He came to save you. He came to free you. And when you have that, when you take that in, you taste true generosity, you let him all the way in to your house, you're free. Zacchaeus is a free man. So come, eat with Jesus. Let him save you into a generous life. Let's pray. God, I do not want to walk over um, the reality of what's happening in this story, which is the person everybody thought was not available to Jesus, Jesus wanted to eat with. And so first, God, every person in this room who thinks there's something true of them that means Jesus doesn't want them, that's not true. Jesus will eat with anybody, and we thank you for that good news. And second, God, it means that uh, when we eat with you, when we know you, we're, we're freed into a generous life for others, to spend ourselves for others, to give ourselves away for others. And so I pray every person in this room, God, whether they've followed Jesus forever or never have, whatever that is, God, would, would you impress upon us the invitation Jesus has to us? Would you, would you let us hear those words he spoke to Zacchaeus and know they are just as true for us as they were for him, for I'm coming to your house today? God, help us to hear those words, to believe those words. Jesus wants into our house to eat with us, to know us. Help us believe that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.